0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello
1: and welcome to this IFG event on how to build on the success of the vaccine rollout. In this budget week, or budget month as it should perhaps now be called, we're going to give you a break from taxes and rabbits and dive into the big unknown variable that could yet throw Rishi Sunak's and everyone else's plans off track. My name is Tom Sass. I'm an Associate Director at the IFG and lead our work on policymaking, including looking at aspects of the government's coronavirus response. So with around a third of the population vaccinated, we're going to discuss everything from the NHS's rollout and how to boost vaccine uptake, to how the government is managing the threat of variants and questions about manufacturing and global distribution. We have a really top panel to do it. George Freeman has been a Conservative MP since 2010 and held ministerial posts in the transport, business and health departments. He's very active in policy discussions, was a chair of the PM's policy board and recently set up the International Health Resilience Commission. He's long been been banging the drum for the life sciences sector. He was the UK's first life sciences minister and before entering politics, he had a career in biomedical startups. Bex Fisher is a GP in Oxford and a senior policy fellow at the Health Foundation. On a Monday or Tuesday, you'd find her in the surgery getting people vaccinated. But luckily for us, she spends the rest of her week engaging with the policy questions the NHS faces. Uh, and along with colleagues at the Health Foundation, she's been paying particular attention to inequalities in vaccine access and uptake. Tom Chivers is an author and science editor at Unheard. Tom's been doing a huge public service throughout the pl- pandemic, explaining the science behind the virus, testing, vaccine development and deployment and much else besides. He has a new book out on how to read numbers, written with David Chivers, who I can only presume is a family relation. And finally, Professor Robin Shaddock. Uh, Robin is Chair of Mucosal Infection and Immunity and COVID-19 Vaccine Lead at Imperial College London. Uh, He and his team have been working on an mRNA vaccine. That's the technology used in the Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna vaccines. Uh, and are currently focused on helping other vaccines to adapt to variants. So before we get started, you can submit your questions using the bar at the bottom of the screen. If you include your name and where you're writing from, try and make them short and ensure they are questions. Uh, If you see someone else asking a question you like the sound of, just upvote it. We will be tweeting from at IFGEvents using the hashtag ifgvaccine. Uh, and we will have a video and sound recording of the event on the website tomorrow. Uh, and I'd like to like to thank the Forum at Imperial College London for kindly supporting this event, and we have more events coming up with them, which I'll tell you about at the end. So Bex, I wanted to start with you. Uh, we've heard lots about the success of the UK's uh, approach to securing vaccines, led by Kate Bingham, uh, and about supply being the only rate constraining factor but successful deployment was not a given. So I wanted to ask for your view on, from the inside on what the successes have been and how the NHS has handled the rollout.
0: Thanks, Tom. I'm so grateful that that is your first question, that you know, a couple of months into 2021, that's the question, not why has this gone so horribly wrong. Um, and of course, procurement and supply are the two things outside of the scope of your question, but so fundamental to it. I guess the bits that I see more closely in general practice and, and where I would attribute success is probably in three broad domains. One is getting the policy right and the strategy right. One is people and one is primary care. And by policy, I mean, you know, it's easy to use the retrospective scope to say, well, this was always going to go wrong. But lots of people had to make very big decisions. You know, Should hospitals be doing vaccines? Should it be general practice, primary care networks? What level does this best? Um, And when we get those decisions right, we often don't scrutinise them, and when they go wrong, we unpick them at length. So there's something about getting the strategy right. I think something that is easy to take for granted, but this should shine a light on, is the strength of list-based primary care in this country. So 60 million people in England are registered with general practice, and we have great electronic healthcare records, relatively speaking that's a really important basis to be able to roll out a programme like this from. Um, And it means you can add nuance. So the government don't know who has epilepsy and who has long-term health conditions but GPs do. And populations often trust their GPs and the staff who work with us in primary care. So I think that's a really strong foundation. And and just finally to say people. People are so important to this. People who are leading the programmes, Emily Lawson, the The relationship that Nikki Kanani, the director of primary care at NHS England, has established with GPs over the last couple of years, I think has been crucial to taking people with them on what is quite a big ask. But then just discretionary effort from people who have been working in pretty difficult circumstances for a long time, and certainly over the past year, now putting, you know, really going the extra mile. And that's not just GPs, that's the whole team involved in vaccine rollout. Um, including all of the volunteers and folk who have come out of retirement to help us out.
1: And can can the NHS keep going at this pace?
0: It's a hard question. I think we've had a really tough winter in general practice. And I kind of feel like despite the huge amount of additional work that the vaccine programme has put on us, it's also been a real enabler because it has been so hopeful. And it has been a really lovely thing that we have been able to do for and with our communities. And so strangely, although it's more work, I think it has in some ways contributed to resilience. I don't want to go too kind of apple pie about it all. There are challenges. And I think a very something that we struggled to do, but are trying to do is look at the workforce implications of this kind of on a longer term basis. And particularly we'll get on to talking, I'm sure, about you know how often we may have to vaccinate people and what it would look like to embed this programme into the NHS long term. And there are definitely resource implications. I think now a lot of us are driven by the motivation, as the public are, that, you know, this is a way out of the predicament we find ourselves in. Yeah.
1: And just before I turn to George, you mentioned the different groups involved there. I mean, do you think this has longer term lessons for the NHS about integration of, of different organisations?
0: Yes, I think... For me, in my experience of working in the NHS and in policy for quite a while now, integration has been a word that is bandied around a lot but is somewhat difficult to see sometimes in practice. And actually, this has been probably the best example I've ever seen of groups working together. And by groups, I don't just mean general practice working with CCGs, with acute trusts. I mean the NHS working with, the army on logistics. I mean, GPs working really closely with their communities, with faith leaders, with inclusion health groups to understand how we improve vaccine confidence, how we reach underserved populations. Um, and I think that's really encouraging. And I think that one of the things I would love to see happen is people to look at this as an example of how integration can work and try and learn from it.
1: Brilliant. Well, we'll come back to that. So, George, um, we indicated there that the sort of foundation of this rollout has been reasonably stable supply what do you think the government and industry have
2: got right there and and how confident are you looking ahead thank you and thanks for having me at this event and i just echo exactly what rebecca just said i i think this has been has illustrated over the last year the best um and also the most challenging in our health system and i think um there some really big lessons to learn. I mean, just on the supply side, I think it's worth saying, if you'd said to any of us, I think a year ago, um, within a year, we will be here. We will be um, we will have developed a, v- a vaccine, um, developed a supply of multiple vaccines here in the UK and will be halfway through vaccinating the entire population. I wouldn't have believed you. I mean, it's been the most extraordinary um, success and a tribute to UK science and UK medicine. Um, I, I think there are lots of lessons about the supply side and the vaccine task force. Um, I mean, really, I think it, you'd expect me to say this. I, I think it speaks to the importance of long term strategy. You know, a lot of this work on being are able being able to sequence the genome goes back to the investment in genomics capacity in the UK back in the coalition. Um, the MHRA reforms have paid dividends, the accelerated access procurement system that we put in place has come good. The MERS work, the UK UK vaccine network that we set up back in 2016. You know, there's a lot of long-term legacy that has come good for the UK through this. Um, In addition, I think, to some really first-class leadership through the Vaccine Task Force and some really important lessons about procurement, working at pace, um, cutting deals, So backing multiple suppliers Um, so there's some really important lessons I think longer term going forward uh, clinical trials as a huge piece of work which I'm working with number 10 on how we make sure we learn the lessons from clinical trials and continue to improve the UK clinical trial network I think the data has been um, an area of real weakness actually the research data good but the Um, We still relied on paper and cardboard in terms of public messaging for much of this. But the really big challenges and opportunities, I think, are going forward. This has been a wake up call that biosecurity has got to be right at the heart of UK industrial strategy um, and science and health economics. I think we've learned that for decades we've neglected real health economics. And the good news is that the Treasury and business, I think, have discovered, really discovered the value of health and the cost of disease. Uh, which is what our Health Resilience Commission is looking at, could we build some much more tangible metrics in to create the incentives for real population health prevention, disease prevention and health promotion? I think if we can make that the legacy, then we'll look back and and say that this was a crisis which triggered some really, really long-term and long-overdue systemic improvements. That's
1: brilliant. I mean, you mentioned that it sort of, difficult for governments to sometimes learn the lessons of these crises because you know a few years later politicians find other priorities so what do you think is the sort of mechanism for ensuring that politicians are still focused on those biosecurity threats that you mentioned in a couple of years time?
2: Well mechanisms for shaping government policy there's a thesis Um, I mean I think this year the G7 um, is a huge opportunity and I think rightly the government are focusing on um, making the G7 itself and the health summit um, a serious moment for international commitment to um, both better global cooperation on research and vaccine rollout. Um, uh, The commission that I've set up with John Bell and others is uh, trying to make the argument that as well as that really important work, advanced economies have got to take the lesson from this, that, the old assumption that once you're through the cholera curve in development you don't have to worry about infectious disease I think that's been exposed profoundly exposed and in the global economy we're all now as vulnerable to infectious disease as the weakest link in the chain Mm -hmm. so a major commitment to global health security uh, and I think you know biosecurity in the broader sense plant animal and human health um, I think we've got some real opportunities here to to take a big lead in that integrated genomics um, uh, science behind global biosecurity across those sectors. Um, And I think if we get it right, and this event is part of that this year, we could really move the life science industry uh, to accelerate the work that's going on on population health and making the industry more focused on helping us prevent disease and better detect, diagnose and treat earlier rather than this expensive paradigm of late-stage diagnosis and very over-hospitalised, over medicalized treatment. Mm-hmm.
1: And just finally what, what, what do you make of the timing of this as a sort of moment to sort of reorganise some of our healthcare institutions? We've got noises about the creation of a new as- National Institute of Health Protection, what's your view there?
2: Well um, I, I was one of those people who I think I was in the first meeting with Andrew Lansley back in 2010 when a group of MPs, I'd ask the question, you know, um, given that there's going to be no reorganisation of the NHS, what's the co- coalition's commitment to improving healthcare and standards? And, and we walked out of the meeting having been just told about a massive reorganisation of the NHS. Uh, my own view is to Rebecca's point, in my constituency in Norfolk, um, we've seen the most extraordinary coming together um, social care, social services, the County Council, Public Health England, the NHS the police, the army, um, huge coming together and things that were impossible for for the last decade have just become possible. Money has been able to be transferred. To me, this has been a moment where we really need to commit to proper localization and integration of health and social care. Um, And certainly from a rural perspective in my part of the world, um, I would be arguing for Uh, a full integration at at county level, if Norfolk social care and NHS and public health was all done together, I think we could make this a really catalytic moment for population health prevention and for tackling that sort of um, traditional, almost apartheid really, between the high hospitalised, medicalised health and the rather neglected social care in a county like Norfolk, the two are very different worlds. They came together this year hugely successfully, and I I think it would be a shame to let that go.
1: That's a really important point. Uh, Tom, I wanted to come to you. So the big threat now that everyone's talking about, that you've been writing about, uh, is from variants which could potentially make sort of vaccines less effective. We still, I think, have a missing Brazilian variant on the loose, although they must be getting close to tracking that one down now. Um, broadly, the government set out its approach to lockdown lifting, hotel quarantine and so on. How confident are you in the UK government's approach to managing this risk?
3: Um, well, I, I wouldn't want to say necessarily about the government's approach, but i certainly say that the UK is extraordinarily well set up to be ready for this sort of thing in certain respects. I mean, we talk a lot about the UK being world leading in X or Y, but it is absolutely true that the UK is world leading in genetic sequencing. Um, and I, 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 seem to remember we've done it. So I can't remember if it's 40% of the, of the world's total, uh, sequencing, or slightly more than half of the world's, you know, so some, it is not, it is, it is nearly true to say that we've done more sequencing, genetic sequencing of the virus than the rest of the world combined. Um, And that, for instance, is what allowed us to detect the the Kent variant so quickly. Um, That and some good luck with how the PCR tests worked, because it happened to uh, one of the things the p c r tests for te- p c r tests tested for the standard ones in the u k happened to be one of the, the mutations so it made it very easy to track it um so i mean that means we are really really well set up to monitor the arrival of new uh variants um and to sort of uh, detect them where they are I think it's something like one in one in ten of all um PCR to people who test positive on PCR, then go on to sequence it, go on to have their uh, the viruses sequences, sequenced. So that means that, you know, we have this really, really good picture of what the variants and mutations are in this country, which I, is, uh, you know, an order of magnitude stronger than almost any other country in the world, apart from possibly Denmark, I think. Mm. Um, so in, in that respect, we are really, really well set up. Uh, there's, there's other reasons to be positive, which I think um, Professor Shatok can probably t- tell you uh, about in more detail, but the the mRNA vaccines in particular, which like the Pfizer one, uh, the Moderna one, the Imperial one that is still under development, I think um, they are very very. They're extremely plug and play, is the word, the phrase that was used to me a few times. Which so you can. Uh, if a new variant pops up, it's it's very straightforward to uh, to repurpose the mRNA vaccine to uh, to to the new variants as they arrive. Um, and while some of the other ones, like the Oxford vaccine, which is a, a viral vector, is slightly harder, they have been aware since you know since as as soon as these um, new variants were detected that they should get these new processes underway. And so it will it'll be very rapid rapid these new um, vaccines will be available. Obviously, that's only. So reassuring on its own because um, you know the Moderna vaccine was apparently ready two days after the uh, the uh, the virus was first sequenced back in January last year, um, and then it took a year of phase, you know very uh, of safety of uh, phase one, phase two, phase three trials and so on before it was allowed to be uh, issued an emergency uh, use license, but. I think it is fair to say that the regulatory systems will are in place um to if you're only making minor modifications to a vaccine that you can just trot it out fairly straightforwardly with just safety trials certainly that's what we do with flu each year we do, it's not as if we have to do a uh, decades-long va- uh, vaccine trials on each new year, um, years new vaccine uh, flu vaccines um so i think from all those po- points of view i'm, I'm not desperately worried about um about new variants in the you know in, in in the long term i think we can easily get these things through and we've already shown that we can get the vaccines to large numbers of people really quickly uh, for all reasons that dr fisher was talking about earlier on you know centralized nhs database annual vaccinations could be possibly done the the question is whether we'll be good at spotting them at the border as they come in and i think there are real concerns about our uh, quarantining and so on and testing at the border but hopefully hopefully that will get better. I think the rise of natural um, flow tests is broadly a positive thing on that front with certain caveats about, you know, uh, worries about false negatives and so on.
1: Mm. Brilliant. That's, that's really interesting. And Robin will take us a bit more into the sort of speed with which we can get sort of updated vaccines to deployment in a moment. I just wanted to ask about So in the the government sort of lockdown exit strategy, it's got these four tests Mm. and some scientists are sort of saying, well, this looks like it could leave it open, whether they allow quite a large outbreak in the unvaccinated population still, because you don't have uh, sort of absolute number of cases as any one of those. Um, What do you think about that? Do you think we can afford to have, you know, the virus sort of spreading a bit as we as we uh, release lockdown? And that's not too much of a risk on the variant front. Well, I think
3: it's always going to be a trade-off isn't it and i think the I, I, I can't i can't remember exactly which tier is aligned to which but i was speaking to one um uh scientist who's sort of saying that what you have these tiers it, when you when you get the vaccine that the virus down to an acceptable level you then open up to the point when uh oh, hangs around about one and you can sort of uh, uh, allow it to burble away in the background without being too deadly and i think that if the the data versus dates thing as long as we take that seriously i think that is that, that seems quite a um, that seems quite a, a reasonable way of going about things. You, when when the virus gets down to a certain low level, especially with the growing protection of the of vac- uh, the vaccine, I think it is reasonable to say there is a level of risk, a level of virus in the in the population which we are comfortable with, and we are that and we are. And we think that the value of having schools open and having I don't know shops open and think these things, which are which you know genuinely are important to people's lives, we are willing to make that trade off. We think that is, we think these are are worth the value. Um, uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, the question, like I say, is whether the data versus dates thing will be stuck to. And the and the other thing is that's really important with the um, the. The uh, the, re- the opening up the roadmap, whatever you want to call it, uh, is that there are these sort of good chunks of time, four or five weeks, really between each of the phases, so that in theory, you know, like middle school science lessons when you were a kid, they teach you to change one variable at a time and observe the changes. To some degree, that's what they're trying to do. It's not as straightforward as that, and of course there, are, but, but we the, the main change will be, for example, on March the eighth, opening schools. There won't be any really big changes until. Middle of April. After that, and so hopefully we'll be able to get much better sense of the impact of things like school on uh, school openings on R, and so on. So I think there we, uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable with the idea of opening up somewhat and keeping uh, as long as we've got virus at a low acceptable level, and then and then carefully observing whether our very the things we changed do uh, are are main uh, can be maintained while keeping the virus at that low level. I think that's important. The one thing that really bothered me was this idea that they are irreversible um whether it's whether it's just something nice to say but you know obviously if we open schools and then the virus blasts around everywhere again then i would suggest you reverse it pretty damn quick but that 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 may be something that you can't reasonably say as a, as a politician i don't know
1: yeah no that's ir- really interesting and i think that sort of being able to change path quickly is one of the things that we've criticized the government for not necessarily being. That well to do just quickly on um, border quarantine and the sort of hotel quarantine then is your view that with sort of ramping up of testing at the, at the border and sort of using these tests even with the sort of only having thirty countries on the on the red list with the longer uh, self isolation period that would be okay or do you think you'd probably need to expand that list
3: okay so uh, with with the very large caveat that I am just some guy right you know like i speak to i speak to clever people and write down what they say is my is mainly my thing i my my own feeling throughout this pandemic has been that we have sailed a bit close to the wind on too many occasions. Or don't do many things like we haven't got evidence that this will be bad, so we'll assume it won't be bad. Or we've got no evidence that this will work, so we'll assume it won't work. Things like masks, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I made that mistake early on in the pandemic where with saying, you know, I, I, there's no evidence the border closures will work, even though common sense sort of suggests that they would. There's, you know, you can we there is no good evidence, there's no RCTs or whatever, I don't know. And um and I think that my my own feeling is that with border closures and hotel quarantining and red lists this is one of those things where it seems pretty likely or certainly plausible that they'll be helpful the costs i mean it strikes me that the costs are probably going to be quite low since there's not going to be a great deal of international tourism for the next while and people coming for business might be more willing to um uh do the quarantining things so my own instinct would be that the even if there's no good evidence that they we need it around further around the world i think the um Uh, my my own instinct would be that the cost of of imposing wider restrictions and more hotel quarantine would probably be quite low and the benefits potentially could be large. So it seems like a good bet. Brilliant.
1: Um, Robin, tell us about the vaccine you've been working on, incredibly exciting sort of technology that, you know, has all these opportunities opening up ahead. And then just give us a bit of a view on how confident do you feel on this question of how vaccines can stay ahead of variants?
4: Thank you yes and thank you for inviting me. So um, the vaccine that we're working on, we're we're still progressing in early clinical trials. Um, We're waiting for our pivotal data to come through. Um, Obviously when we started our approach this time last year, um, it wasn't clear whether any vaccines would work. Um, and now we're in a very happy position that there is a large number of candidates coming through. So we're not sure what place our vaccine will have in that portfolio, which is now pretty uh, crowded. The good news is that obviously these vaccines can be made very quickly. And, and we've talked about variants and the, the UK's ability to pick up on those variants uh, very efficiently through the sequencing. And I think one of the things that's already to some extent reassuring is, Although we're talking about variants, we're talking about a few key mutations that are cropping up in different parts of the world. So one of particular concern is, is at a position 484 in the spike glycoprotein. And that's occurring in South, uh, South Africa, in Brazil. We're also seeing it co- popping up in some strains that, that derived in the UK, in the US. So what we're seeing is, is a degree of converging evolution. Um, the virus is coming to the same uh, solution for m- uh, higher rates of transmission. And that's a very different problem to something like HIV, where actually we see uh, a huge diversity going off in, in multiple directions. And so the number of variants that we need to be prepared for is, is quite um, controllable and quite achievable with vaccine technology. And we already know in terms of those vaccines that have been approved, some of them work better against some of those variants than others. And so if we see any variants starting to predominate, we can roll out vaccines that are better against that particular variant. But going forward, um, clearly uh, all the companies are working on versions of their vaccines that can act against those variants. And as you rightly said, if you've already proved that your vaccine works in clinical trials in terms of efficacy, changing just a very small part of the vaccine um, means that you only have to do safety studies before it's reintroduced um, as an acceptable vaccine. The RNA platforms work really well for that because it's a synthetic process. It can be done very uh, readily and very quickly. Um, The other technology is a bit slower but can certainly work and I know Colleagues at Oxford are working on a variant um, that has the 484 mutation in there, so that's likely to become available. But longer term, I think we also need to be very aware that, that we potentially are missing an opportunity in the UK. We talked about legacy and investment in sequencing, and that's been a fantastic success. But what we really haven't been as, as astute at is investing in RNA technology, mm. uh, which has really proved its worth recently. Um, and when I sit here and look at the investment in Germany of, of hundreds of millions from the German government and in the region of billions in the U.S. government, it's very clear that we've got a long way to catch up. And, of course, those companies that have benefited from being first into the vaccine field, will also now get massive returns on that investment. Um, And I think actually if the UK can have a joined up strategy that builds on the ability to sequence things very fast with the ability to manufacture in UK uh, with this new emerging technology, then we'd be able to catch up and potentially uh, be very prepared for any future pandemic as well.
1: I wanted to bring George in on that. But just quickly, Robin, on this question of speed, we had uh, Tony Blair at an IFG event last week arguing that we should aim for 100 days from sequencing a genome to deploying a a vaccine. Is that
4: realistic? It's definitely possible. I mean, you know, when we designed our vaccine, our RNA vaccine, we produced a prototype in 14 days. And if you've got the manufacturing facility, you can do that in a matter of weeks. But it's having that facility on standby with the capacity ready to go and fill hundreds of vials, which ultimately becomes the bottleneck rather than the design.
1: Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, George, Robin's taken us in some fascinating questions, there, the sort of nimbleness of regulation, but also the financial backing. Do you want to reflect on that?
2: Yes, thank you. I completely agree um, with the point Robin made. Two two key points, really. Um, so, firstly, on the the vaccine and the manufacturing side. I mean, it's worth remembering um, when uh, John Bell and I and Sally Davis and Co. put vaccines at the heart of the life science strategy back in 2015-16. It was very much the poor relation, you know, in the in the traditional life science sector. Um, drug discovery had tended to be the sort of uh, the golden sector and vaccines have been neglected here in the UK. And um, our point at the time actually was that the manufacturing of vaccines was about to go through a technological revolution. And that was an opportunity for the UK, which indeed it has been shown to be. So I completely agree, Robin. And I, in the work I'm doing uh, for the PM now on regulation for innovation Uh, one of the things I'm looking at is how we could take the best lessons from this last year and develop a more strategic approach to uh, UK leadership in setting the new regulatory standards for some of this very fast-paced new genomic medicine. And on the funding side, um, again, similarly, I mean, when I was investing in the sector, very, very few companies in the UK, I mean, vaccines were very much the poor relation. And I think one of the opportunities now is to mobilise both institutional pension uh, assets. I mean, trillions of pounds sitting very low levels of investment in equity and in research in the UK. And also, I think there's a public appetite now. I mean, I think if you you, if you were to launch a UK vaccines ISA right now, you'd find an awful lot of people wanting to back it. So I think there's an opportunity for us to both build a more integrated ecosystem that reflects where this new um supply and demand landscape is heading but also to bring some more retail investment in and bring some more volumes of capital to play because i think there's a unique moment where the public have realized the value of all this to them and to their communities as well as to the country
1: yeah uh, Bex, I wanted to come back to you on the issue of equity of access and, and uptake. Uh, the Health Foundation had a had a great piece on this uh, earlier this week, and you know clearly the threat of the virus and of mutation is going to be greater if if large parts of the population remain unvaccinated. Um, how much data do we actually have on uptake in different groups, and and what do you make of efforts so far to sort of boost vaccine confidence, tackle misinformation, and so on?
0: Thanks, Tom. I think it's such an important question. And I guess it's so important to set this in the overall context of COVID and of what we know about who normally gets left behind, because this is structural. This isn't chance who gets left behind. This is this relates to long-standing structural problems. So if you look across IMD um, quintiles, poorer people are about twice as likely to die as COVID of COVID as the people who live in our wealthiest areas. If you're a black Briton, death rates from COVID are about four times those of a white Briton. Yet what we're seeing in vaccine rollout is unfortunately predictable, but predominantly poorer people are being left behind and white people are getting the vaccine and black Britons are the least likely to have had the vaccine so far. And so these are, are real challenges, They relate to long-term structural problems that we've had. But I think we have to work out, well, what do we do about them now? And there has been an assumption in the vaccine rollout that these inequalities will exist. So that's good. We knew they would be there. So we've been looking for them.
4: Mm.
0: And there has been quite an impressive effort, I think, to get data at a really quite granular level to understand which populations aren't getting the vaccine. And I guess I would separate it into two things. There's one question of vaccine supply. So is the problem here that actually we're not getting vaccine supply to the areas with the populations that need it? Something that frustrated me early on was the initial JCVI prioritisation, which said we're going to prioritise over 80s as a kind of blanket. And, And the challenge I had with that is actually being over 80 is a privilege that is generally associated with being wealthy and predominantly white. And so if you base your vaccine supply in that way, you are. Automatically going to leave behind poorer people and you're going to leave behind minoritized ethnic people. But where, even when we look at vaccine supply and we kind of take that out of the equation and we say, well, what's happening in our communities on a really granular level? What we now understand is that even within a layer super output area, so a very small geographic area of a couple of postcodes. If you are a wealthier person living in that area, you are more likely to have had the vaccine. If you are a white person living in that area, you are more likely to have had the vaccine. And I think that takes us into these questions about how do we get vaccine confidence and how do we reach underserved populations? So this isn't just about data and supply. It's about access and confidence. Last week, NHS England made about £4.2 million available to CCGs um, to try and start to address these issues. I One thing I would just like to say that I think it was thrown up by the JCVI's Phase 2 prioritisation last week, where they made a decision to continue prioritising by age groups, which is controversial for a number of reasons. There will be people who say, you know, teachers and um, the police, and you know, there are all sorts of reasons why that is a controversial decision, but I think one as relates to equity is that their prioritisation is based on the idea that we want to get this out quickly. We all understand why that's important, but actually the underserved populations, the least vaccine-confident populations, are the slowest to reach. And if we just say we're going to go with pace, 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 we're going to leave people behind. And the people we leave behind aren't being left behind by chance. They're being left because they are poor or they are minoritized ethnic. And I think we have to really look long and hard and say okay how do we challenge this how do we make sure we're not leaving people behind and how do we get depth of penetration through our vaccine cohorts not just let's roll out
1: it's such an important point and i just wondered how much how much would you place the emphasis there on the jcvi ranking because of course the jcvi did also say there needs to be some flexibility locally and how you know different areas move down through these groups And how much would you place it on sort of the way in which supply has actually been distributed? Have you been held back by not being given enough vaccine to move on to those groups?
0: So I think the answer to that depends on how much, in part, on how much there is a supply constraint. Mm. So I work in an area of very high deprivation. And at the start, we were really being constrained because we had an exceptionally small cohort one. Not many people where I work get to live to be over 80. So it took us a day to vaccinate cohort one but we weren't allowed to move down through the cohorts. And we wanted to get to cohort four. So cohort four is where you bring in the clinically extremely vulnerable. And we have a huge number of patients in cohort four because we have very many people who live with multiple health conditions, often from a very young age. And so we had a situation where we weren't being given vaccine supply because we didn't have many over 80s, but we had this absolutely massive group of people who are extremely vulnerable. And, our group of people who are extremely vulnerable often live in big, multi-generational households where people are working outside the home. And so I would argue they're actually at much higher risk of death from COVID because they can't effectively isolate themselves. And, and so I think that's less the case now because supply is less of an issue. So if we are allowed to move through cohorts, which is eventually what happened, um that's one way of challenging this but i think we also just have to be mindful that there are some levers here so you are paid by the number of vaccines you use um and so that is an incentive to get vaccines done quickly it's not necessarily an incentive to go and reach your underserved populations lots of people are doing that because i think it's the right thing to do but we all know that incentives and levers matter and i think we need to think about where they've been placed at the moment. And, and is that the right place to encourage the type of behaviour that we want?
4: Mm-hmm.
1: We've got a question here from Anonymous, uh, uh, who asks, any thoughts on the likelihood of vaccine passports of some kind or another? Tom, I wonder if I could come to you first on that.
3: There we go. Uh, yes. Um I mean, yeah, it uh, seems pretty likely to me. Um, I, again, like we well, you know, not that I have any s- huge special insight, but they, uh, certainly it seems the most thing. And it's not as if, I suppose, it depends what we mean by vaccine passports, right? With well, the um, uh, vaccine passports in the sense, in in the sense of, will you be allowed to travel to Greece or Spain without getting vaccinated? I mean, I, I suspect there will be something like that for overseas travel fairly soon, because I mean, it's not as if it's unusual if you if you want to go to um, I don't know. So you need to get uh, various uh, various jabs now, and they need to be put in your passport to show that you've that you've had them, you know, yellow fever or uh, malaria or whatever, and those sort of not malaria. But yeah, so I don't think that in itself is. I think it's probably going to happen, and probably going to happen quite soon, and especially if some governments say in. Um, Say Spain or Greece, uh, say it, then you'll find that there'll be a, quite a lot of demand among British people <laughs> for it because they won't go on holiday. So I think I, I think that will be, that will happen fairly soon would be my guess. Whether there'll be passports in a um, in a not quite so precise sense of sort of you get a get a vaccine and now you're allowed to go to the football or something like that, you know, um, opening up society for people with a vaccine, I I'd be a little bit more surprised because it seems logistically difficult to do. Um, mm-hmm. But, and you know, there's sort of the the mechanisms in place for it. But again, no, it, it may be that it may be that it's useful. The, 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 the thing is with that, my own feeling is that by the time you've got the, the mechanism sorted out, there'd be some such a huge proportion of the population would already be vaccinated that it would become, uh, it almost be a slightly, slightly something of a waste of time. And then there's the the thing that you know, well, with, with the new variants coming around, will we have to do that again? We're not going to have every year needing a um. Needing a new thing, so you can go you know, go and watch Liverpool or whatever, or go and you know go to the pub. I, I think that I think that my again purely on my instinct, without any gigantic special insight into it, that seems the most likely situation. But it wouldn't surprise me at all to see that there are vaccine passports and possibly even annual up- boosters required required every year to go on holiday to various different countries and things like that. Mm. George,
1: where do you think the Conservative Party is on this? Michael Gove has been tasked with leading a, a review. Just looking at the sort of different ethical, you know, implementation questions and so on. Where do you think what What's your sense of where they're
3: at? Sorry, sure, that for uh,
2: me again. Oh. Sorry, that was for George. So I I don't detect oh, sorry, any sorry. any great um, sort of conservative backbench movement about uh, vaccine passports. I I can see why you're asking, um, but I think the um, the sort of lockdown skeptic libertarian wing is pretty small and it's um very very much smaller than it was in the autumn when i think most people i, I certainly looked on with the amusement I and mean, i think most people in the country could see that getting the disease under control meant some very difficult decisions and lockdowns work um i, I think um, there'll be strong support for a, a sensible policy based on decent science and um clear thinking and i um My own view is I'm like Tom. I I think most people sort of accept that it's got to be proportionate, but that, um, you know, in the same way that when you travel to some countries, you have to have a yellow fever certificate. You have to have certificates. Surgeons have to be certified before they operate. um, It's got to be proportionate. I think people would think it was very strange if you had to have a vaccine certificate to walk up your high street. But I think they would probably agree that if some point later in the year you wanted to go to a nightclub, um, that's different. And I I think people are quite sensible. And I think they have on the whole, they've seen that, you know, we all have to make some sacrifices for the good of both public and individual health. So I don't detect any great political um, pushback. I'm sure somebody, a few people will try, but I think the public opinion is pretty firmly on whatever helps allow us to get back to safe living. And do, do
1: you think a use case like a nightclub is is realistic given a vaccination isn't, you know, 100% guarantee? You know, you don't quite know what someone's status is?
2: No, it's probably a terrible example. Um, but <laughs> um, I, I was really just making to illustrate the point. I'm trying to think of, um, you know, will you need a vaccine certificate to go to the pub is probably the sort of the pub test, right? And I think people would say, well, you know, in some ways, remember, of course, having a vaccination doesn't we don't know for sure that it necessarily means you can't spread the disease. In a way, having had a test, you know, is the bigger test. And I think people were very happy in the summer to give information about whether they have had a test. I, I think as long as we make testing really easy and vaccinations really easy and the rules sensible and fair, I think the public are with us on this.
0: Yeah.
1: Bex, I was interested to get your response on that and some of the sort of ethical questions involved in in vaccine passports. I also wanted to throw you another question from Andy Wertheim from Oxford, uh, who says, if large-scale annual booster jabs become necessary, will new deployment methods be needed to relieve the pressure on our GPs and allow them them to get back to their day jobs?
0: Thanks, Tom. Um... Perhaps if I take the second one first, if that's OK. Uh, yes, Andy, I think they probably will be. The thing I would challenge slightly is that GPs are doing the day job at the moment. So we are doing multiple jobs. So, for example, in the practice I work in, we are actually the vaccine site for our primary. So vaccines are being delivered by primary care networks. So groups of a small number of general practices, usually four or five or six. Um, and so general practice at the moment is operating as normal and so we are effectively double running and there are significant staffing implications of that at the moment I think we're meeting this by a mostly discretionary effort to be honest people working on days when they would otherwise be working in other ways people volunteering um, people coming back out of retirement and so yes clearly that isn't going to be a long-term prospect But I think there are other options and things may evolve. So at the moment, the logistics of of running vaccine clinics, particularly for Pfizer, which is just slightly more complicated in terms of the cold chain logistics, but also how you draw it up. um, It takes longer to give somebody a vaccine than it does just to give them a flu jab where it comes in a pre-filled syringe and there is much less of a um, lengthy consent process for it. So I think there are ways that in time we may be able to streamline this and make it less of a, of a sort of time-consuming thing to do. But in principle, yes, we are going to have to work out how we do this alongside general practice um, in the future. And I think general practice logically is probably the right place to be delivering this now and going forwards. To that question of vaccine passports, I mean, it's so difficult, isn't it? I, and I think we have to say, well, what are we trying to achieve with vaccine passports? And I think there are different answers to that depending on where we are talking about applying them so are we talking about vaccine passports for international travel to me that is a different thing to are we talking about a vaccine passport to go to Glastonbury or to the pub um I think we also have to be very wary of using them as an incentive to get a jab um that said I am mindful that a very big incentive to get a jab is not wanting to get sick from or die of COVID. And your risk of doing that decreases as we go down the populate down the age cohorts. Mm. Your risk of being exposed to vaccine misinformation also increases as we go down age cohorts. So my understanding is that Facebook is currently the biggest source of vaccine misinformation. Um, and interestingly exposure to vaccine misinformation is a kind of trickle up effect from our youngest age groups of the population to older adults. Clearly, that's not always the case, but it is an important thing to consider. So something I'm interested to see is, are we going to maintain levels of uptake in younger populations who potentially have less to benefit um, from? The caveat I would throw in there is that long COVID is not to be underestimated in terms of the morbidity it is causing. I think that is a powerful incentive for younger people to get vaccinated. But I one final point A lot of people who are underserved by the health system and by this vaccine rollout are people who will not be able to benefit from some of the privilege we've just talked about. They're not people who would be planning to get on a plane and go to a foreign holiday. And they're not people who are going to have available income to spend in a pub or by going to Glastonbury. So I just think if we're thinking about vaccine passports as a lever, to increase vaccine uptake, we also have to be aware that actually it's not going to be in effectively some of our most underserved, underconfident populations.
1: Mm. Robin, I wonder if I could bring you in at that point. So we've opened up this question of, you know, the slightly longer term vision of boosters. You know, there's been talk of all in one vaccines or, you know, sort of updating boosters. Can you talk us through a little bit like what, what that would look like and some of the sort of, you know, deployment questions involved in that? And then I also wanted to just throw you another question, which is around the sort of global supply issues. So there's been quite a lot of criticism of rich countries for sort of not doing enough there. Do you think that that's
4: fair? So let me start with uh, the uh, supply and the booster question first, because I think... One thing that we need to acknowledge is one of the reasons that this virus is causing such a problem at the moment is it's, it's ramping its way through a population that has no immunity whatsoever. So it's very different to influenza, where you may get a new strain, but you've already seen a type of influenza before. Um, and I suspect and I think you know it's widely held in scientific circles, that actually the cellular, cellular immune response that you get to either infection or the vaccine, is still likely to give you protection from serious disease uh, or death, um, even though you may feel unwell, and that will probably be around for quite some time and is not being eroded by these current mutations. So um, vaccines will get better. Um, we talked about the Pfizer vaccine needing a cold chain. I, I suspect that will be fixed fairly, fairly shortly. So I'm sure we'll soon see, you know, the equivalent of influenza vaccines where the COVID vaccine comes in a pre-filled syringe or, or a similar technology. And it may be, you know, in the first year we see most people get a booster. But I suspect that the, uh, the way things will pan out is that we will look to boost the vulnerable where their immune responses may be less robust. um, And we'll probably see increasing complacency in in younger cohorts that may not see there's a benefit from constantly getting boosting immunizations. And and it's clear that with influenza, there are still people who would benefit from an annual influenza vaccine who are no longer coming forward. Um, And so I think we'll see the problem will change over time. I, I don't think it's a... A, a given that we will be boosting the entire population every year for you know multiple years to come so it will change. You asked me about global supply and, and that is important um, and you know we were talking about things like you know quarantining coming into the UK it, it's clear that that's not sustainable for the long term um, and the only way we're going to be able to stop doing that is if we manage to control this virus on a global basis. Um, And so we really need to be uh, ensuring that vaccines are made globally available. The UK has been a leader in that space. I mean, uh, you know, The UK has given I think now over half a billion dollars to COVAX, the initiative to make vaccines available globally. It's either the biggest donation or one of the biggest donations so we've set a very good precedent there. Um, Occasionally the UK is criticised a little bit because it is true we have made uh, advanced purchases for uh, everybody in the UK to get about four different types of vaccines. But again, I think we need to recognise that some of those vaccines that have been purchased have not actually passed uh, the testing phase and have not been approved. And so whether those actually make it, um, we don't know. We're not sitting here with a stockpile of vaccines, sitting in a a warehouse that are ready to go somewhere else and that, that are spare. We may get to that stage. And I think if we do, then it would be equitable and right to be shipping them elsewhere.
1: Brilliant. And question from Jill here for you, Robin. Uh, will the COVID success spur the development of vaccines for other tropical diseases in future? And does the approach to procurement through sort of advanced uh, purchase commitments suggest that making that happen will become a bit easier?
4: I mean, I hope it will change things a lot. Um, I think the the technology hopefully will change things a a lot. Um, There are already advanced purchase agreements for vaccines that have already been licensed. And that's driving, drives down the cost for many low income countries. But some of the issues that we face in terms of unmet vaccine needs are often where they're infectious diseases that are in low-income countries, so there isn't a strong economic argument for large pharmaceutical companies to go after them, or they're very difficult to solve issues like TB, HIV, malaria, where we don't have uh, effective vaccines, and by driving down the economics of development uh, and this is, again, where the RNA technology could change that equation, means that it's viable to start making s- vaccines for geographically restricted diseases that may not have high income uh, profits. Um, and it also drives down the cost of doing research for some of those really hard to go after targets. So I-, I do think there's a potential for a revolution in this space, but Um, It will need some clear thinking and a long-term strategy um, in order to make sure that that's realized. Remembering that the RNA technology actually came out of the cancer space. The companies were working on personalized medicine where they could maximize profits um, and making vaccines available for low-income countries. They need to cost less than a dollar a shot. um, And that's still a significant challenge for the technology.
1: Mm. George, I wanted to bring you in on these international questions. I mean, how do you see this sort of question of national versus global priorities? Are we being sort of generous mm. enough? Should we be more generous? Are we doing enough on
2: the international stage? Um, look, I think I think this is an opportunity where the UK can show that you know we may not be a military superpower anymore, but we are a science superpower actually. and we've the soft power impact of what we've done here. I think he's phenomenal. And as a former trade envoy, as well as a citizen of the world, it's, you know, this this counts. The world looks at the UK and I think our investment in COVAX and our commitment to make available our vaccines for less developed countries and is is really important. And I, I'm one of those Conservative MPs urging the Prime Minister to make sure that, you know, in re- rebalancing the public finances, our international investment and commitment to to international development and to the science of international development is not undermined and in, in my areas of food medicine energy we've got huge opportunities to help the world go through um, the next 30 years of sort of green industrial revolution with clean tech agri-tech med tech digital health um, and that's that's not just sort of aid it's um, helping the global development in a sustainable way, and it's in everybody's interests. So, um, and I think the Prime Minister's uh, pretty strong on that, actually, and I, I I, think you'll see more of that over the coming years. I think in some ways the, so the International Health Resilience Commission that I, I've set up in the last year, um, one of the, we'll be putting out our interim report in June on the eve of the G7, but one of the very interesting observations I'd make is that you know the in asia in the asia pacific uh, region we've seen some of the smaller democracies the smaller city states have done have handled covid best and there's an interesting geopolitical lesson in here i think if you look at countries like taiwan countries like new zealand uh, they've been doing something very right and i think it it's really important that as well as the big global commitments to pandemic preparedness and and vaccine availability globally we also look at what the little countries got right in their in their trust in their government systems in their population health systems and it's also true i think that maritime economies like the asia pacific region which is absolutely crucial to global growth biosecurity for them isn't isn't a scientific concept it's a daily reality of ships coming in carrying tropical diseases uh, in an archipelago of tiny islands, all growing at five, six, seven percent, so I think the biosecurity bit is huge, and again, there's a massive opportunity for the UK to be a global exporter of bioscience um, biosecurity science. i I went to Portland down a few years ago and suggested that we rather than sort of slowly wind it down as a cold War relic of NBC research, we reinvested it as a campus for biosecurity and link it to the WHO and to the Jena. And I think that's a possibility again. you know, Global biosecurity is going to become more and more important, and we're really good at it. Brilliant. Thank you, George.
1: That's a really interesting, throwing us forward. We're coming towards the end of time now. I'm going to come to Tom and then Bex just for some final reflections. Tom, uh, pick up on any of that, but I also wonder if I could ask about these sort of long-term lessons about biosecurity health and so on.
3: Um, well, sure. I, mean, I suppose I will... Echo what George was saying about us being a superpower. I know I said earlier about um us being uh having this incredible capacity for sequencing, which is, you know, uh, and led by these amazing organizations like UK Biobank and U- and um Genomics England, which are uh, which haven't has been doing the sort of human sequencing as well as the viral sequencing in the lighthouse labs and things. That's been amazing. And there's also we've had these I mean really led the world, I think it's fair to say, in um in the RCTs into COVID treatments and uh uh, I, uh, will I be able to remember them? The, the the two that we've two treatments that have been found to work, which I will mispronounce at least one of them, but one of them is dexamethasone and the other one begins with T. Um, Arthur, uh, they they uh, they've been, so yeah yeah. Thank you. They they um uh, they've been they they they've been shown to work by this amazing huge recovery trial. It's called, which has been a, a UK led thing and it has been astonishing. So I think it really has been uh, you know there's been lots that's gone terribly wrong in the uk response to covid but in the in the sort of scientific response has been absolutely immense um as for long-term lessons <laughs> i mean i think the um uh the, the long-term lessons to be learned about i mean this is this is maybe my own personal bugbear but the, about about not be, you don't not needing to wait for perfect data on things and not needing to be you know, to being 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 quicker and fi- and faster moving, and but and thinking more about downside risks than um than being sure, you know, than absolutely perfect evidence. So, I mean, uh, again, early on in the pandemic, we we had all these concerns about whether locking down early would lead to pandemic fatigue and all these things, and so we were very cautious about locking down too early, and and relying heavily on a um a flu pandemic uh sort of plan, and. I, you know the um and it, uh, there, there have been you know it's it very likely if we'd locked down a week earlier it would have saved thousands of lives and i think and then later later on we made a mistake with masks of saying we we have, uh, we'd have we've got evidence for this that it works so we therefore we won't we're going to say it doesn't work and i think one thing we could have we could have said back then was like we haven't got brilliant evidence that it works but we think it could and the costs are low and the benefits are potentially great so we can move faster and wait for the evidence to come in later and i think that that would have been on a various points down early with masks with various other things that that would be my lesson with is 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 think more about think more of it as a cost and benefits um cost a cost benefits analysis rather than as a waiting for perfect rcts and waiting for the perfect evidence to do everything because i think that has cost us quite badly at various points
1: yeah. Brilliant. And Bex, final reflections from you. And I'm greedily going to squeeze one more audience question in, which is from Devon Viralia in London, who asks about the extent of the challenge of vaccine misinformation on social media and whether you're picking that up at at a local level.
0: So I don't get any vaccine misinformation on my social media, which to me is a reflection of what an echo chamber I live in, because I get a lot of it via my patients and um, from talking to staff at our our practice who do get a lot of vaccine misinformation on social media it's hugely important and I think uh, something that we have to do is not only work out how we try to stop that happening that is I think a challenge for the tech companies it's a regulatory challenge much has been written about it not just related to Um, COVID related to large questions around American democracy, for example. Um, But I think we also have to think, well, what information do we replace the misinformation with? So what information do we need to get to communities to help them be vaccine confident and more importantly, perhaps even the what precise information, who needs to bring that information to communities? Because the answer to that I don't think is necessarily their GP or the NHS. It could be a range of people, including trusted faith leaders other leaders within communities and actually everybody who has the vaccine becomes an advocate for the vaccine whether positively or negatively which is something i always think when i'm vaccinating people it's so important to give people time to answer their questions to make sure that they're heard their questions are answered because that person will go and they will tell somebody what their vaccine was like and that may influence somebody else's choice to have the vaccine so this works at, at all levels i think um Yeah, I'll leave it there.
1: I'm aware we're out of time. No, that's a brilliant point to finish on. And we've got uh, another event actually on disinformation around the vaccine in a couple of weeks. So we will pick up those questions there. Um, Thank you very much to the brilliant panel. Um, Thank you to you for questions and to the forum Imperial College London for sponsoring this event. If you enjoyed the discussion, we've got another one in two weeks time on science after coronavirus. What lessons should the scientific community broadly be taking from the pandemic? We've got Rupert Lewis from the Royal Society, Beth Thompson from the Wellcome Trust. All the details are on our website, but goodbye for now.
4: Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.